service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Harrison Ford are insane. He was a touring cameraman for Jim Morrison in The Doors. He was a carpenter who fixed up the houses of James Caan and Joan Didion. He dealt weed to Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, partied with the Rolling Stones, romanced Hollywood royalty. He even told one of the greatest directors of all time how to make his own film. A great film, just like many of the films Harrison Ford has appeared in over the years. And unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of an unidentified group of convicts performing Hammer Song in 1939. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather. And why would I play you that specific slice of don't ask me about my business cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 26, 1972. And that was the day that filming began on a chaotic production that would set the course for Harrison Ford's rise from Hollywood handyman to certified megastar. On this episode, keeping up with the doors, slinging weed to the mamas and the papas, partying with the stones, and Harrison Ford. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. San Jose, California, 1968. Jim Morrison was writhing around on the stage floor, screaming into a microphone as light rain fell on the crowd. In the wings, Harrison Ford checked his grip. He tried desperately to adjust his focus, but Jimbo jumped to his feet and stumbled away. 
Harrison just had to keep him in his sights and take the shot when the moment was right. But nothing was right in this song, in this performance, which kind of seemed to be the point. Jim was tripping over himself, falling to the stage again, slithering like the Lizard King he was, while his band, The Doors, brought their song, The End, to its climactic finale. Finally, Harrison pulled focus. Jim was there, right in Harrison's sights, in the flesh, Mr. Mojo Rising. Harrison pressed the shutter button. All that struggle to get one clean shot. He had to admit, it wasn't ideal. He hoped this was just a temporary gig. Harrison Ford knew he was meant for other kinds of work. Other scenes, movie scenes. Not busting his ass to get a halfway decent photo of the unpredictable Jim Morrison. But a guy's gotta do what a guy's gotta do. And with an eight-month-old at home and steady cash flow not even remotely a thing, Harrison Ford took the work that he could get. Work that Columbia Pictures wasn't willing to offer. It made sense for a fresh-faced newbie to sign on as a day player when he first arrived in Hollywood, four years prior in 1964. Of course, he didn't know any better at the time. Now he was beginning to see the light. Being locked into one studio for a seven-year period, a studio that called all the shots and controlled every aspect of your career, was quickly becoming a serious drag. Harrison wanted roles in films that mattered, not bit parts and photo shoots for magazine ads. All that bit work to earn bit pay, just 150 bucks a week. Things were looking bleak. As bleak as they did that day in San Jose. The kind of day that the doors and everyone else had seen before. Strange vibes in the air. Hell's angels guarding the stage. Altamont wouldn't happen for another year, but collective trip was already starting to take a bad turn. The so-called Northern California Folk Rock Festival was a shit show. A dirt show was more like it. 28,000 fans standing in a field full of the stuff. Sure, the music was great. Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, The Animals. But day one, more than 10 hours in the heat, was soured by a bad batch of PCP making the rounds. On day two, rain clouds threatened to turn the entire field into mud. All those stoned, exhausted fans were ready to go home. And here was Jim Morrison, rolling out the equally exhausted routine he flaunted back home in LA. Wait, is, is he actually doing that fucking Oedipus thing again? He is, isn't he? The crowd weren't the only ones growing weary. John Densmore, Raymond Zarek, and Robbie Krieger played their instruments with blistered frustration. They brought the show-stopping epic to a merciful halt and tried not to worry about whether or not they were wanted here. The peace and love crowd in San Jose was more flower children than riders on the storm. As far as they were concerned, the doors could ride their crystal ship right back down the California coast, back home to Los Angeles, where a gritty reality played seedy underbelly to the idyllic hippie dream. Where, in the late 1960s, L.A. found itself in limbo. Studios like Columbia were running their companies as if Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin were still kicking around. While young filmmakers were blending acid-soaked rock and roll with the impending apocalypse to forge a movement that would come to be known as the New Hollywood. But Harrison Ford wasn't getting in on any of the New Hollywood action, or that New Hollywood money either. Not yet, at least. In 1968, 
He was still stuck on the Columbia conveyor belt, which was more like a hamster wheel. Columbia watched him run in place and didn't see a star ready to break loose, so they just cut him loose. Harrison Ford went from getting paid little to getting paid nothing. He had no dough, but he did have skills. A crash course in carpentry led him to swinging a hammer in no time, banging nails into the walls of homes owned by James Caan, James Coburn, and Joan Didion connected him to other skills and other gigs. Running a camera for Jim Morrison, for instance. Slinging weed to Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. By all accounts, Harrison Ford didn't just have good shit, he had brutal shit. And by the late 60s, Hollywood needed a brutal high to drown out the everyday brutality. LA went from the birds ringing out the chimes of freedom to the Buffalo Springfield wondering, hey, what's that sound? the sound of love quickly overtaken by the sound of violence. Screams of bloody terror up on Cielo Drive and then over on Waverly. Those screams echoed into the 1970s. Hollywood wiping the slate clean after all that helter-skelter with a mainline of Big H. A dream had given way to a nightmare and now all anyone wanted to do was forget about it. Harrison Ford wasn't looking to escape, but like most Angelinos, he drove like he was on his way somewhere, literally and figuratively, a Ford tooling around in his Chevy, thinking about the script the casting director asked him to read. One of those connections made by his hammer, his dealing, and maybe just his rugged good looks. The role was all attitude, a drag racing degenerate named Bob, a perfect fit. Also the perfect working conditions to cut his teeth, a way into the industry that he had a tenuous relationship with. But this wouldn't be a typical Hollywood set. This was one big chaotic party. New Hollywood, a new kind of high. The beer bottle shattered on the pavement of the half-empty parking lot, and the hotel guest walking from his car suddenly froze in his tracks. The hell was that? He scanned the area. Nothing. A strange feeling came over him. He'd heard that some wild crew had taken up residence here in the Petaluma Holiday Inn, some 40 miles north of San Francisco. He hadn't heard much else, until now. And now he was starting to think he'd chosen the wrong place to crash for a few nights. The guest ducked behind the car. He began to sweat as the potentially horrible realities ran through his mind. Was he being targeted? Were these warning shots from the angels? He was, after all, on their territory. These small fry towns outside the big city were the perfect kind of places to boost the wallets of unsuspecting hotel guests. But the Hell's Angels weren't this subtle, were they? They didn't seem to be in that lunatic Hunter S. Thompson's book. There was no time to find out. The guest frantically scurried to the nearest entrance of the building as mad laughter echoed from a dark balcony somewhere above. Not the laughter of hell-raising bikers. Hell, these two guys didn't even know someone was down there cowering in fear. They were just a couple of actors trying to blow off steam. 
because the shoot they were currently on was blowing through pages at an unheard of pace. Six, seven, even ten pages a night. Speed, 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 faster, faster, faster. Fast, like the direction that bearded whiz kid George Lucas liked to give on set. George's chute cruised along with all the muscle of a souped-up hot rod. But long nights of work were beginning to wear on everyone. Like whoever set George Lucas's hotel room on fire. A disgruntled actor, perhaps. At least that was the rumor. Fed up with the pace. Fed up with Lucas's cavalier attitude. But was there lethal intention behind the blaze? George Lucas didn't know, and frankly, he didn't have time to find out. The longer this shoot lasted, the less time he had, less money too. He was determined to survive this production and bring his vision of American graffiti to the screen. He was the director, he was in control, or so he liked to think. In reality, a lot was out of George Lucas's control. A cameraman fell off a trailer and was run over. Local bar owners were pissed off by the constant presence of loud Hollywood egos in their otherwise humble watering holes. And just a few days into shooting, the entire production had to change locations because a crew member was busted for growing weed. It was in this environment that a cast of budding 20-something movie stars loitered on shutdown streets, vintage cars zooming by at breakneck speeds, hurrying up and waiting between takes. All that downtime was dominated by the self-proclaimed den daddy, the guy who told George Lucas he wouldn't cut his hair for the film and then demanded a raise before he even signed on. The guy who never looked like he gave a shit. Harrison Ford was a constant concern for George Lucas. Harrison's onset routine was well established. Hang out in his car between takes, sip a few beers, race up and down the main drag. A nice beer buzz in the cool Northern California air blowing through his shaggy hair put him in just the right state of mind to get into character. It also attracted the local cops who kept threatening to arrest him. His charm may have worked on the actual police, but on set, with all the waiting around, all the fucking around, there was no real way to police what was going on. And that all provided the perfect backdrop for a good time, a party. And if American Graffiti was a party, then Harrison Ford was the host. 1972, years removed from his days struggling to get by in LA, dealing dope and fixing houses, now he was actually doing it, embracing it. Excitement followed him wherever he went. He got you with his charisma, just like he got out of trouble with the cops. Then that whiff of danger snuck in. Something so damn magnetic about it, the whole crew could feel it. Harrison and his co-star Paul Lamatt tossed another bottle from the balcony and laughed their asses off as it shattered in the parking lot below. Not everyone was currently sharing their humor, however. There was that one guy, the hotel guest who scurried away thinking he was about to get jumped by the sons of anarchy. And now there was another guy, a doe-eyed 18-year-old child star who wasn't even old enough to hit the strip bar with the crew. Ron Howard was light years from the set of The Andy Griffith Show. This was Bedlam. His anxiety was beginning to peak and not about keeping up with the two actors getting hammered and tossing bottles, about his brand new car parked just below the balcony from where they continued to launch their 12-ounce missiles. Ron joined the duo on the balcony and spoke up. 
He didn't want to, you know, spoil the fun or anything, but just like hang on and give him a second to go move his car, you know, just in case. And Harrison flashed that smile of his and made you feel like the only person in the room. No problem, Ronnie. Ron sprinted down the stairs and out to the parking lot, and he would be quick, he promised. He wasn't trying to be a bummer, he was only... Maniacal laughter came from the balcony above, and then the heckling started. Dance, Opie, dance! Ronnie jumped into his car and pulled it to safety, thinking he had successfully brought Harrison Ford's train to a screeching halt, but there was no taking it off the tracks. Harrison and Paul channeled their inner Keith Moon. They left trashed hotel rooms in their wake. Luckily, there weren't any Lincolns to drive into the swimming pool, but there were unsuspecting castmates to hurl into the pool. Harrison watched with pride as Paul picked up Richard Dreyfus and launched him into the drink. And then he watched it all recede as he climbed his way to the top of the Holiday Inn sign. It was a race, whoever was brave enough or drunk enough to challenge him. And Harrison was fast, one arm outstretched and then the next, shimmying his feet, pushing himself higher, free solo atop this glowing neon beacon that beckoned to all weary travelers. And the Holiday Inn staff, however, was becoming weary of Harrison Ford. Soon he was cut loose, just like Columbia had cut him loose years prior. Evicted from the hotel, it didn't matter. The next summer, 1973, American Graffiti was released and it blew the hell up. $55 million gross, 55 times its budget. It certified that George Lucas had arrived as a filmmaker and gave him the financial autonomy he was always searching for. It did not, however, bring Harrison Ford the opportunities he was expecting. Apart from a minor role in Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 classic, The Conversation, it was back to frustration, back to carpentry, back to whatever kept his pockets full and his family fed. He wasn't about to sell out, take whatever was being offered just to take it. Just like on the set of American Graffiti, when it came to his career in Hollywood, he'd do things his way. He could afford to wait until something better came along. Till then, he leveraged those well-worn connections. He strapped his tool belt to his waist and started building. His measurements were precise. His work was good. He was framing out a door at the offices of American Zoetrope, the film production company co-founded by Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. The same office where George was now conducting casting calls for a passion project he was making off the proceeds of American Graffiti. This was kismet, Harrison thought. I'm here, George is here. Put the hammer down, read for a part in this new movie, bing, bang, boom. It was widely known that George was having trouble casting one of his leads. But George had a thing about recasting actors. Harrison wasn't about to let that face him. He also wasn't about to keep on hammering while George was having actors run lines. Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, Burt Reynolds, Christopher Walken. All of them trying out for the role of the cocksure, world-weary, swaggering smuggler. George liked walking for the role, if he was being honest. But he couldn't deny Harrison's charisma. It was so special, how it pulled everyone into his orbit like a tractor beam pulling a Corellian light freighter. George couldn't help but be entranced. I look for magic, he said when asked about his casting process. After months of casting calls, George Lucas found that magic. It was framing out a door in his office. And his next film would change Harrison Ford's life forever. 
an obscure space opera that he was calling the Star Wars. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. London, 1979. Carrie Fisher squinted her eyes and tried to steady herself. She honed in on Billy D. Williams, but even he appeared to be an amorphous blob. It wasn't just Billy. Everything was blurry. And it wasn't because of the blinding white walls of Cloud City. Hell, they weren't even inside yet. And maybe she wasn't simply tired. She was starting to think she was still hammered. Carrie could handle her liquor. She could drink with the boys and drink them under the table even, but damn. She wondered just what was in those cocktails last night. Whatever it was, they called it a Tunisian death drink. That should have been a sign right there. Sure, they tasted good going down, but now, now it seemed like there was more than just alcohol in those drinks. She looked over at her co-star, Harrison Ford. He flashed a big shit-eating grin right in the middle of a take and showed his hand. He was still feeling it too. Despite the way she was feeling now, the previous night was still clear. Carrie was in her house, the one she was renting from Eric Idle. Eric Idle, troop member of Monty Python, brave Sir Robin, one time upper-class twit hopeful, but I digress. And the phone rang, it was Eric. Carrie, you gotta get over here, the fucking Rolling Stones are here. And they were, all of them. One simply did not pass up a chance to pass a bottle with Mick and Keith, even if you were needed on set early the next morning. And furthermore, one did not seize this opportunity alone. You ring up your scene partner who shares an equally early call time the next day and tell him he has no choice but to accompany you, which Harrison Ford gladly did. But this wasn't just any old Rolling Stones we're talking about here. This wasn't the mild boozers of the early 60s or the more put-together version they'd evolve into in the 90s. Hell, it wasn't even the heroin-addled outfit that managed to hold themselves together through one of the greatest runs in rock and roll history. No, this was late 70s era stones, and my God, the boys were black and blue. Frequent arrests, jet-setting lifestyles, chemical dependencies that led to more than a few relationships dissolving. But the lads never stopped grinding, and they had just hit pay dirt with the record Some Girls, reestablishing themselves as chart-topping perennials. My point is, the Stones had been through the ringer and were ready to cut loose again. Enter Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford. At this moment, Carrie Fisher wasn't dipping into booze too often, and Harrison Ford, now half a decade removed from his wild man antics on the set of American Graffiti, had reeled it in as well. They were respectable, professional actors by now, filming the sequel to the most famous film of all time. But again, I cannot reiterate it enough, this was the Rolling Stones. So, the two, Carrie and Harrison, got after it. They followed the Stones' lead for the evening. Two parts Glimmer Twins, one part Python, two parts intergalactic movie stars, and who the hell knows how many parts illicit substances intended to send you into orbit. Shaken, stirred, and served with a clock that continued to click late into the evening meant one thing, a raging hangover. And that would be the case for certain if the stars intended to sleep at all. As the dawn approached, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford were starting to come to a realization. Sleep wasn't an option. They had to stay awake for the long haul, burn the candle at both ends, otherwise they'd never make it to set. But now, standing on a soundstage, 
staring blankly at Billy D. Williams. It was clear their strategy was as half-baked as they both still were. And if the weed was meant to be some kind of tonic, a balancing act, it wasn't doing its job. Not that this was Harrison Ford's first experience being stoned on set. There are plenty of stories from the production of the first Star Wars film about how he and others liked to roast a joint on their way to work. And I mean, look, it was 1976. Plenty of crew members were lighting up, but they were also tight. Harrison marveled at the professionalism and punctuality of the English crew. And they started work at nine each morning, hard out at five each afternoon. And that kind of work ethic helped Harrison bear down and focus on his craft, but it didn't mean he was sticking to the script. Things with Harrison Ford were as by the book as his character Han Solo's response to Princess Leia's line, I love you. That classic comeback, I know, was a Harrison original. An idea he floated to the screenwriter after he read through the script for The Empire Strikes Back. The joke was deeper than most knew at the time because three years earlier, in 1976, Harrison and Carrie, Han and Leia, had a chemistry that was electric on and off the set. It made Carrie Fisher's head spin. It made her mind race. She was excited. She was anxious. She was pulled into Harrison Ford's orbit by his magnetic tractor beam. And just what the hell did she think she was doing? Harrison Ford, her co-star, was a married man. Some 14 years, her senior. She needed to give the whole thing up. But first, she needed to sit down. By 19 years old, Carrie Fisher had done her fair share of living. A daughter of, in her own words, Hollywood inbreeding, she was born into the industry to famous parents who famously divorced. Her pop star father, Eddie Fisher, and movie star mother, Debbie Reynolds, split after Eddie started an affair with Liz Taylor. She thought about marriages and affairs and scandals now, thousands of miles from home, her mind going non-stop about the idea that she was romancing her co-star on the set of, well, whatever the hell this flick about space cowboys was going to turn out to be. She took another hit and coughed. Thick smoke bellowed from her lungs. Damn, man, they were right. Harrison Ford had brutal shit. She had been getting high since she was 13. She'd spent her teen years developing a tolerance for the stuff. Smoking grass was a casual thing to her now. But whatever Harrison was rolling was on another level. Maybe because Harrison was on another level. She loved making him laugh. Even if she succeeded only a handful of times, he was her priority, though she knew she was most likely a dozen spots down on his list. Maybe he was born this way. Maybe going through the industry ringer and coming out the other end a superstar with megawatt charm had given Harrison Ford a seemingly impenetrable suit of armor. I love you. I know. Harrison played it cool with Carrie. He played it cool with everyone. He played it cool every time he walked through the shit came out smelling like roses. Well, maybe not every time. Tunisia, 1980. The car rumbled through the bone-dry landscape. Dawn was beginning to break. Harrison Ford had already gotten more than he bargained for on this film shoot. The whole thing was another Northern California folk rock festival, another Altamont, another summer of 69 in LA, a bad trip. 
During the filming of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harrison had almost been flattened by a giant prop boulder. Dragged from the back of a truck, he tore his ACL when the landing gear of a plane ran over his leg. And if it wasn't for his leather jacket offering a thick layer of protection, those poisonous snakes would have eaten him alive. He hated snakes. But all of that was nothing compared to this. The sun was slowly rising. He could already feel the heat coming. Oppressive heat. Heat that wanted to devour you whole. The start of another 130 degree day. The kind of day you spent continuously fanning your face just to keep out the flies that wandered in. For no other reason than it was cooler inside your mouth than it was outside. And it wasn't just the heat. Something was off in Tunisia. And this time it wasn't because of the Rolling Stones' custom-made cocktails. Whatever Harrison had been eating over the last few months was beginning to destroy him from the inside out. His guts were a mangled mess. With each bump on this uneven dirt road, his stomach turned. His stomach also turned at the thought of the two or potentially three workdays that still remained. The Raiders script called for a full three and one half page fight scene that pitted Harrison's character, Indiana Jones, against a jacked villain. A villain played by a weapons expert who was going to be whipping around a giant sword. Three and a half pages. The idea of running around in the heat, sweating, exerting every ounce of energy he had, pushing, pulling, struggling, going toe to toe with some Hercules with a cutlass for that long, it was enough to make him sick all over again. Besides, he couldn't get out of his trailer for more than 10 minutes without having to run back in and hit the toilet. He reminded himself that this was it, the final scene. Do this, then get back on a plane, back to England, back to bland food, away from whatever was in the water or whatever the hell was wreaking total havoc on his body. If it was his call, they'd cut the whole thing. But it wasn't his call. It was Steven Spielberg's call. Harrison racked his brain on the car ride to the set. He thought about an excuse to get out of it, but nothing came to him. Nothing but more knots in his stomach. He couldn't get comfortable. He leaned back and closed his eyes. There had to be another way. Screw it. Didn't matter that this is one of the most anticipated new films from the hottest director in the world. Harrison Ford was gonna do what he always did. Build it from scratch. Do it his way. Improvise. Spielberg was well known for giving his actors the freedom to ad-lib lines. Harrison said he wanted to ad-lib an entire scene. He stood in front of the director, the war inside his stomach raging, and laid it all out. His character, Indiana Jones, had been carrying this gun throughout the whole movie. Thing was, he hadn't pulled it out. Not once. Why not now? Why not subvert the audience's expectations? This big muscle guy gets out his sword, throws it around, this formidable opponent ready to slice little Indy down, and then BAM! Let's just shoot the fucker. Spielberg went with it. And the result was one of the most iconic actions by one of the most iconic characters in one of the most iconic movies of all time. All because Harrison Ford had a debilitating case of the shits and wanted to go home. All because Harrison Ford called an audible, just like he had been calling them for years. The right angle to pull focus on an elusive Jim Morrison. The right hammer to frame out a door. The right strain of brutal weed to sling to Hollywood's elite. Steering his ship in the direction that moved him the most. No need to calculate exactly how to navigate the asteroid field between here and there. Just drive, 
Like you're in one of those old Chevys tearing ass through Petaluma while George Lucas makes you wait some more. It's not always easy. You'll get dinged. And there are injuries on set. Plane crashes, too, in fact. Harrison Ford went through the ringer just like his beloved Stones. Divorced, fired, chewed up, spit out. Pushed to the edge physically, mentally, and professionally more times than he'd care to remember. But never tell him the odds. The greater the odds, the greater the story. A story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.